Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the delay in the Dominion case against Fox News, which indicates there may be a settlement before Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson and other top propagandists in the network have to go on the witness stand where they would have to avoid lying under oath, something serial liars and bullies might find uncomfortable. Furthermore, while paying out a billion or more might not be painful for the Murdochs, Issuing an on-air apology to their listeners for lying to them about an election Trump lost apparently is too much for a propaganda outfit posing as a news operation for which telling the truth is bad for business. Joining us is Angelo Carasone, President and CEO of Media Matters for America, a media watchdog and non-profit described by Bill O'Reilly as the most dangerous organization in America. Angelo was profiled by The Guardian as a leader of grassroots resistance activism in the age of Donald Trump, and we'll discuss how Americans who are alarmed that Trump is still a menace to America, who also find Fox a danger to American democracy, are subsidizing the Murdochs via their cable bills, which generate the bulk of revenue for Fox News. Then we'll examine the speech today before a wealthy audience at the New York Stock Exchange by House Speaker McCarthy, who threatened to hold the debt ceiling hostage to cut funds for Medicaid and SNAP food aid for the poorest Americans while vowing to protect tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans. Joining us is Dave Camper, a senior state policy coordinator for the Economic Analysis and Research Network at the Economic Policy Institute, whose work focuses on the Midwest helping to bring together policy thinkers and grassroots leaders to build collaborative relationships that empower communities in America's heartland. We'll discuss his article at the Economic Policy Institute. State and local governments have spent less than half of their American Rescue Plan fiscal recovery funds. Recovery funds should be used to rebuild the public sector. Then finally, we'll look into the callous barbarism of dueling warlords in Sudan, supported by the Saudis and Emiratis, who are duking it out with bombs and tanks for dictatorial control of the country across Sudan and in the capital of Khartoum, where innocent civilians are collateral damage. Joining us is Steve Howard, a professor and associate director for graduate studies at the Ohio University School of Media Arts and Studies, a sociologist by training whose work focuses on social change in Africa and social movements in the Muslim world. He was a visiting professor at the Afad University for Women in Khartoum and is the author of Sudan, Scenes from a Youthful Uprising. And his forthcoming book is We Are Mahmoud on the Path of the Prophet in Unsettled Times. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our soundbites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Angela Corazon, who is the President and CEO of Media Matters for America, a media watchdog nonprofit described by Bill O'Reilly as the most dangerous organization in America. Angela was profiled by The Guardian as a leader of grassroots resistance activism in the age of Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Angelo Carasone. Thanks for having me. And of course, the age of Donald Trump continues. Uh, he's now the leading Republican candidate for president. And Tucker Carlson just had a, a softball interview. That's hardly an adequate description with him recently. So let's talk about the trial with Dominion. Uh, there's already been incredibly damaging court filings that have been very damaging to Fox, making it pretty clear that telling the truth is bad for business as far as Fox is concerned. Yeah. What's the latest on that, Angelo? Because the, over the weekend, the judge said that there was a delay. He resume on Tuesday. There are rumors, and fairly likely, that they'd rather settle out of court than face more damaging testimony. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth a, a couple of things are happening at the same time. Um, I have. It seems very likely that the Murdochs and Fox tried to make another run at offering some kind of a settlement. Um, but I don't think that alone accounts for the entire sort of um, the, the entire delay. So just a little bit of context here in in the toward the end of last week, the judge really admonished Fox uh, and their lawyers. And specifically, it was uh, involving two things. One, up until basically last week or the week before, Fox had maintained that Rupert Murdoch was not an officer of Fox News, and therefore, in order for Fox Corporation to be fully responsible for this, um, they'd have to battle this out in court. And the the short story is that basically Fox produced a document uh, where they identified Rupert Murdoch as an officer. So basically, the thing that they were arguing in court for almost a year, um, they actually essentially withheld that evidence, uh, which was one significant thing that the judge was very mad about. And then the other thing was there was a bunch of material, some audio recordings that had come forward uh, that had come out that sort of um, demonstrated that Maria Bartiromo, who's a Fox host, didn't believe some of the claims that she was ha putting on her air uh, herself. And she was actually you know, pretty aggressively critiquing them. Um, Fox never produced that material during discovery, uh, which alarmed the judge because then it sort of raised questions as to what other material might have been withheld. So at the back end of last week, the judge was pretty mad at Fox um, and had made it clear that that there might that there would be additional sanctions, although that was left up in the air. So when they rolled into the weekend, Fox was in a pretty bad position. So it doesn't surprise me at all that they tried to push for one more settlement. Um, the thing, though, that is significant is that late last night, Fox submitted a motion with the court. And in that motion, they asked the judge to allow them to explicitly talk about Donald Trump during trial. Um, when Fox lost the summary judgment motion a couple weeks ago, the judge said, look, it doesn't matter if other people push these claims about Dominion um, because this trial is about Fox. So you're not allowed to bring these things up during trial. And Fox made a motion last night basically arguing, look, we know we're not allowed to use that as defense. However, if Dominion was damaged by these claims, then surely Fox News alone cannot be responsible 
for all of the damage that occurred. And as a result of it, we want to bring in evidence of Donald Trump promoting the claims, as well as a few other right-wing hosts, although they didn't name them, um, so that that could be factored into the damages discussion. And I, I it, the judge hasn't ruled on that motion yet, but given the significance of that, and it's likely to affect everything, including their opening statements, I can understand why the judge would want some time to rule on that motion before the trial started. But that's a part of Fox's argument, isn't it? Donald Trump makes the news, therefore we have to cover it. Well, that is a that was a part of Fox's argument. Um, they are not allowed to. They lost that argument. They lost that argument during uh, previous proceedings. And one of the things that you know they filed for a motion for summary judgment to dismiss uh, to dismiss the 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 lawsuit. Obviously, Dominion filed a similar motion to sort of declare themselves the winner. The judge sort of ruled on a bunch of pieces here, and one of the things the judge ruled on was to say, this is not a neutral reporting uh, situation. You don't get to make that defense during trial. Um, so they actually lost that. The judge said very clearly that they far exceeded um, the, the, the requirements that would uh, basically eliminate that defense. So they will not be allowed to make a neutral reporting claim during trial. They don't get to say we were just reporting um, that we were just reporting what other people were saying. They, they lost that during summary judgment. So this motion is significant because they're basically making the case much more explicitly that not do they, you know, that they don't want to make this argument in the context of a defense. What they want to make it in is the, in the context of assessing their financial responsibility for the damages that Dominion experienced. And in this case, it looks like they're going to try to pretty ex aggressively throw Trump and the rest of the right wing media under the bus. But I think that last minute filing would have also had a factor on timing because it will affect everything, including the the narrative of opening statements. And, and obviously it would certainly affect what Rupert Murdoch is likely to say on on on, you know, if he takes the stand. Well, the judge is also annoyed, I believe, with uh, Murdoch, as he said, he couldn't travel to the trial in Delaware because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then he said he was uh, going to get married and uh, he had to delay it because of his fifth marriage, which has been since called off. Yep. And the judge pointed out that he plans to travel between his homes in Los Angeles, Montana, New York, and London, so he's hardly infirm. So at this point, I guess the real issue is not just Murdoch on the stand. It would be Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Bartolome on the stand, right? I mean, yeah. these guys are real good at dishing it out but they'd be fair game in the witness box. Indeed, and that means there's going to be, you know, to some extent, them discussing statements they made about these claims and also about Trump. Um, you, know, you know, when Tucker was talking about how much he hated Trump, he was also talking about how much he hated the lies that Trump was saying about the election. Um, even though Tucker himself was, pro was promoting them and continues to promote them, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, during the recent interview, you know, Tucker obviously basically gave the whole floor to Trump, but in one of the questions he asked him, he said some people say Joe Biden won the election. I mean, you know, Tucker is still pushing, just like much of Fox, they're still pushing the idea that the election was stolen. Um, they're just not using Dominion as the, you know, they're not mentioning Dominion, they're not mentioning voting machines, they're just sort of generically, you know, echoing the narrative that the election was stolen. So, yeah, on the stand, these guys are going to have to confront their pretty explicit documents where they talk about the fact that they are deliberately and intentionally misinforming their audiences. 
um, giving their audience what they think their audience wants, even though they know it's not true or a lie. Um, and it's a confrontational thing. Now, whether or not we get audio of this is an open question. Um, there's a there's currently a audio where you can listen to the trial, but the judge up until so far has said it can't be recorded or more importantly rebroadcast. There's a current motion before the court to allow for media and others to record the audio and rebroadcast it. The judge has not ruled on that yet, and, and I sure hope he does. So what do we know then, Angela Corazon, about the settlement talks, which presumably are going on and have been going on? What kind of numbers that I mean? Dominion's suing Fox for $1.6 billion. Right. Um, and there's another case in the pipeline from... Smartmatic for yeah. two point seven billion. So my understanding is that they're talking around the ballpark figure of five hundred million. But what's really holding it up is that uh, Dominion is demanding a public apology from Fox, and Fox right. is not willing to do that. I mean, my overall sense of it is that Dominion will not take anything less than a billion, probably more. Um, and I don't blame them at this stage. I mean, if you think, if you look at the evidence that's available. Uh, you know, this is we're talking about a two month period of systemic abuse by on the part of Fox. Like, you know, I, I think that they really think their damages are are going to be in the punitive area. And it's worth keeping in mind that unlike a lot of other uh, jurisdictions, Delaware doesn't have a cap, a limit on punitive damages. So, you know, a jury which will find almost certainly that Fox is responsible here could give very little compensatory damages to um, to Dominion, but award them very significant punitive damages to sort of demonstrate that what Fox did was was really above and beyond. And I, I think my overall sense is that's that's what Dominion believes. So they did reduce their damages claim over the weekend. So to your question about the settlement talks, they basically said um, during trial that they are they were making two things. One was an argument about lost profits. One was an argument about earn, about lost value in the company. They said, look, we're going to abandon um, the, the value of the company uh, argument. We're just not going to make that case about damages during trial. So they reduced their damages claim by about by about five hundred million dollars. Um, so uh, obviously, I think, you know, it's not clear five. There's no been no information about what Fox has offered, but. I don't think any serious offer would come in at less than a billion, even for it to be from a financial perspective, because Dominion has quite a lot to gain from maintaining a trial. And then to your other point, and I think this is where the rubber meets the road, no matter what money they put on the table, Dominion is pretty firm um, in their insistence that Fox not just pay them, but also correct the record. And for Fox News, the one thing that would be more painful than paying out billions of dollars in damages is going on air and telling their audience that they not only lied to them, but that they lied to them about the election. So Fox News for News Corp is a $3 billion plus profit engine, I believe. Yeah. But uh, I understand that even though reven advertising revenues are dropping for Fox, uh, for yes. on Tucker Carlson, for example, they still make most of their money through cable fees for literally pressuring the cable companies and by comparison msnbc gets 33 cents uh yep. cnn gets about 70 90 cents per month and fox news charges over two dollars a month yep. and, uh, and now i want to jack it up to three so yep. explain how their hard-nosed negotiating 
basically subsidizes that network in, uh, regardless of advertising. Right. I mean, we think about commercial TV as something that requires commercials. Uh, and to a large extent, that's true. Most TV channels get the primary bulk of their revenue and profit from advertisers, which means you have to make a product that not only gets you viewers, but then is something that is sellable to advertisers. Fox is uh, an, an anomaly. They are the only, it, 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 I think they're the, at least they have been the only commercial TV channel that does not need a single commercial. If they had zero dollars in ad revenue, um, they would still have a fairly hefty profit margin. Um, you know, in the past, it was up as high as 90%. In the last year, it's been about 40%. Um, and that's that's a big deal. And one of the what they've done is you know, starting around 2010, when Glenn Beck got fired, they shifted a big part of their business model to leverage their audience. You know, cable fees are not set by by ratings. There are plenty of other TV channels that have way higher ratings than Fox, but don't but only get a fraction of the carriage fee. Um, what Fox it's it's based on this thing called the demand score, which is sort of a complicated formula that every cable company has to assess how much their potential customers or existing customers want a channel on, in a, in a, available in a package. And what Fox has done is sort of the same way that they, they, they hop their audience up on misinformation to get them to engage in our you know, culture fights and political fights. They actually run these campaigns called the Keep Fox. And they say, you know, your cable company is about to take away Fox News from you and you better call them and tell them you don't want them to drop us and demand it. And what people don't realize, including Fox viewers, is that when they're calling, they are actually calling to demand the cable companies increase their bill. Um, and that's a big part of what Fox has done for the last 10 years, is that they've used a series of misinformation, working up their audience, threatening to turn off access to sort of sister Fox properties, um, all in service of jacking up Fox's carriage fees so that they get this guaranteed revenue. And I think that's the big deal here, is that what the carriage fees provide Fox News is guaranteed revenue, guaranteed extreme profits, so that they can put programming on the air that may not get them maximum you know, um, advertising value, but allows for them to get you know, an enormous amount of political pressure out of it, uh, political value, power out of it. And that's, that's this sort of balancing act that Fox is engaged in. So the incredible part about this, to put a bow on it, is that while they're actually sitting in trial, uh, this month, they're renegotiating three of their major cable contracts. And it's just, you know, they have a very uphill climb to begin with. As you know, cord cutting is happening. But it's it's really incredible to think that in this moment, there's a reckoning that's sort of happening outside the courtroom as well um, in these rooms that will be negotiating their rates. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, then, Angela, let's talk a little about how, I mean, we know that Fox has an outside influence beyond its ratings. It's the mm -hmm. highest rated cable show, but still the numbers are still below even network news numbers, and not that right. people are watching network news as they used to. But they've had an outsized influence, I think, and this is why the Republican Party is so indebted to them, at least as far as I can tell. They've brought people into politics that never used to vote on the far yep. right. And Trump, of course, lifted up a rock and said it gave everybody permission to be racist again, with his starting with his Bertha canard. So there's a whole bunch of people now. I mean, when you think about the fact that in spite of the most incompetent, reckless, pathetic, embarrassing presidency in American history, in 2020, Trump got, what, 84 million votes or something? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, what's the real debt that the GOP has to Fox? My sense is it's brought them millions and millions and millions of voters. Yeah, it has. And I think that, um, you know, the thing about Fox is their power comes from the fact or has up until this point is that they are part of a much larger right wing media echo chamber. So talk radio, uh, obviously an online ecosystem, you know, sort of that constellation of right wing media. And what Fox's role in it has been is they have incredible agenda setting power. Um, So they were really the ones that could help sort of define and shape narratives that then get pushed not just through the right wing media, but through that right wing echo chamber. So you have to think about every every Fox segment, you know, when they're hyping a caravan or they're promoting the Tea Party, that sort of who they choose to bring on air, how they pluck guests from the fever swamps and sort of elevate them. Those people then go back out into the right wing media. So those narratives get get echoed. The individuals that they elevate get an additional footprint in the in the landscape. And that's where how they're essentially able to leverage that that their place for political power and sort of how that relationship fits into this broader Republican Party is that at this point they fused with the Republican Party and they really have helped enable this strategy of building power on what used to be considered the fringes. That's what the Republican Party is doing now. To your point about Trump, he added a lot of new people to the voting rolls. And one of the ways that he did that uh, last cycle was by organizing power on what used to be considered the fringes. And what Fox did was sort of take things that used to be isolated to fever swamps, to the extremes, to the edges, um, and they moved them into more mainstream Republican positions such that you know, if you run a segment about something from sort of a, a disreputable site or a disreputable source, um, if you're a, you know, Ted Cruz, for example, you know where your bread is buttered. So the thing you want to do is comment on that topic so that you can hope to get yourself booked on Fox News that night. So in a way, they sort of pulled things from the edges uh elevated them, validated them, gave them the imprimatur of all their political power, and then laundered it back into the rest of the right-wing media echo chamber. And if you do that enough times over the course of years, um, you build the very pipeline and engine of radicalization that you're referring to. So just in closing then, Angela, Secession, a popular TV (laughs) series is based on the Murdoch family and the patriarch on one of the recent episodes was having to address the, the kind of garbage that they've been putting out on the air and what to do about it. And he says, we don't do shame. And that seems to be the, the Fox motto, if, if you will. Yep. Is there a few of the reporters have, some have defected, some have tried to tell the truth, but the more popular ones are just full on propagandists. And is there any possibility I was looking forward to seeing Tucker Carlson on on the stand because, as I mentioned earlier, these guys are, are great at dishing it out, but they've never really had to face real questions as a prosecutor would on, on the witness stand. Any chance of holding these people to account? I mean, I used to spend a lot of time in the Soviet Union, met all these reporters from Tarts and Pravda, etc., and I felt sorry for them because they had to push the propaganda line. But the idea that you have volunteer propagandists for either a government in power, as they were when Republicans are in power, or for a candidate. This is really shameful in terms of if you believe in American democracy. It is. It's shameful and it's dangerous. I mean, I think we're at a real inflection point here because if um, you know Fox is a uniquely destructive force, 
And nothing can get better in a sustainable or durable way if Fox is still out there operating uh, at scale with impunity. I mean, it just it they there's no way around that. And you know, in terms of accountability and and anything getting better, I mean, in a way, it starts with this trial. But even if they even if Fox loses at the maximum penalty, they will probably still be fine unless a whole bunch of other things happen at the same time, meaning there has to be cascading consequences here, or this will end with a big payout to Dominion and, and not much change in behavior. And that cascading consequences comes in the form of share, shareholder lawsuits, which I think will start. I think the rest of the news media needs to start treating Fox News much more like the way they treat Alex Jones's Infowars and much less like they treat other news outlets. I think it's time to sort of drop the veneer that Fox News has any journalists left. Uh, or any, any sort of any sort of journalistic components to it. It's not a news operation. It's a political operation and, and should be treated accordingly. And I think other news outlets in a way can help empower Fox by continuing to treat it like a news outlet uh, when we had, we all, in fact, know that it is no longer a news outlet. And the last thing is it's always about the money. And, um, you know, they will lose money on this trial. But more importantly, it's an open question for America's consumers as to whether or not we want to continue to subsidize Fox. If Fox is successful at these contract negotiations and they're able to not only renew, but renew at an increased price, then Fox not only will be just as bad as always, but they'll get worse. They'll, they'll essentially have a license to kill because these contracts will last for years, um, sure. well beyond the transition. So it's we're at an inflection point. It requires sort of buying and engagement and a shift in paradigm and behavior from every possible constituency that intersects with Fox News, right. the media, business, the public. And you and I and everybody that I know that is terrified of Trump and hates Fox News, we're subsidizing their main revenue source from cable. So yep. it's just shocking. I thank you for joining us. Thank Angela. you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Angela Carson, who is the president and CEO of Media Matters for America, a media watchdog nonprofit described by Bill O'Reilly as the most dangerous organization in America. Angela was profiled by The Guardian as a leader of grassroots resistant activism in the age of Donald Trump. And take a restation back and back examining the speech today before a wealthy audience at the New York Stock Exchange by House Speaker McCarthy, who threatened to hold the debt ceiling hostage to cut funds for Medicaid and snap food aid for the poorest Americans while vowing to protect tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dave Camper, who's a Senior State Policy Coordinator for the Economic Analysis and Research Network at the Economic Policy Institute, whose work focuses on the Midwest, helping to bring together policy thinkers and grassroots leaders to build collaborative relationships that empower communities in America's heartland. He has an article at the Economic Policy Institute. State and local governments have spent less than half of their American Rescue Plan fiscal recovery funds. Recovery funds should be used to rebuild the public sector. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dave Camper. Thank you for having me. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Dave. And obviously, I want to talk to you about all this unspent money and what will happen to it. And largely, of course, in states with Republican governors and legislatures. But just to touch on on, well, I guess the broader issue of economic inequality. It's an amazing, brazen statement made today by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to an audience of at the Wall Street uh, Stock Exchange um, where he called on, said that the, basically the GOP is going to hold hostage the debt ceiling in order to exact cuts in Medicaid and food assistance, food stamps. So this is a sort of almost like a declaration of war on the poor in, in front, of course, in front of an audience of very wealthy people. It absolutely is, and it is reprehensible to talk about balancing the budget on the backs of the poor, on the backs of most vulnerable people. Um, the, the debt ceiling shouldn't exist, but as long as it does exist, it should get a clean increase and that's it. Um, the problems that we had in the debt ceiling a, de- a decade ago and more when when they agreed to to commit the act of austerity delayed this country's economic recovery for years, hurt millions of people. This is just terrible policy that will not help anybody. And they should just pass a clean debt ceiling increase and move on with with doing the work of that the American people need. But for some time now, McCarthy's been avoiding what Biden's basically saying, you know, look, we've published a budget and you say we, you want to have private negotiations, but why don't you put up, show me the money, put your uh, plans on the table for the American people to see. And clearly McCarthy doesn't want to do that. Well, you know, this actually goes to, to what we're going to talk about in a minute, because it seems to me this is part of an effort on the part of, of certain policymakers to try to pretend the last few years didn't exist insofar as we proved through the CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan Act, and other things that the government can step in and do good things and help people when they need to if the government puts the resources behind it. We proved that in this pandemic by not taking us into a, into a generation-ending depression. And there are certain policymakers who I think don't want to admit that, in fact, you can use government to do good things to help people. And so anytime some of these folks want to uh, change the subject, they talk about cuts to people who don't need it because they don't want to talk about that government can do good things for people. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, the U.S. will default on its debt for the first time ever this summer if Congress doesn't raise the debt limit. So this is this would be probably the greatest self-inflicted wound in the history of the United States if it happened. It would be irresponsible brinksmanship, uh, and breaching it threatens a devastating economic crisis that would make the Great Great Recession of 2008-2009 look like child's play. So let's talk about uh, your article at the Economic Policy Institute. State and local governments have spent less than half of their American Rescue Plan fiscal recovery funds. Recovery funds should be used to rebuild the public sector. It's astounding to think that the state and local governments get all this free money and don't spend it. What's that about? Yeah, so so let's let's 
briefly define the program. So the American Rescue Plan was the big piece of legislation that the Biden administration enacted when it came in. A significant chunk of that was a $350 billion fund that was sent directly to state and to local governments, uh, to basically every single one of them, for them to use to battle the pandemic, to deal with the economic consequences of the pandemic, to, uh, to, to provide premium pay or hero pay for low-wage workers doing essential work in the pandemic, to do important infrastructure work. This was spending on the scale of the problem. This was the, this was the right thing to do, to provide a large amount of cash that state and local governments could use to do good things for, for their constituents and for the people who live in their, in their towns, in their states, in their counties. Uh, and what we're seeing is that while there's a lot of great uses of the money out, there's all kinds of good things that have happened with it. There are a number of states and a number of local governments who aren't spending the money and who really ought to be because the money can do good things for people and it should be spent, or at the very least, they should be making the plans to spend it now um, rather than waiting until the last minute when there's a risk of them losing the money. So th this program, this $350 billion program that's already passed, the money's already been allocated, it's called the State and Local Fiscal Recovery Funds. Six states, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, South Dakota, and Mississippi, have spent less than 10% of their funds. And all six, of course, have Republican governors and Republican majorities in their legislatures. So if there's 90% of the money sitting there in the bank and they're not spending it to improve local conditions, right? I mean, let's talk about, before we get into the, into the insanity of this, talk about what other states are doing with this money, how useful this money could be, because as far as I know, state and local governments are starved for money. They would welcome this money. Oh, goodness. They absolutely are starved for money. And again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier. The debt ceiling negotiations in 2010 set up a decade of austerity where local governments and state governments were, were starved for funds in every possible way. And so now we've got the money to let them do that. There are 375,000 fewer public sector workers in this country than there were before the pandemic. The money could be used to fill those vacant positions. There are low-wage workers who are struggling to get by. The money could be used to, for premium pay to cover their costs. We've seen states do great things with raising wages of child care workers and, and long-term care workers, which is, again, a great way to use that money to deal with other sort of concurrent crises in the care industry and elsewhere. Uh, we've also seen folks use this money to uh, to rebuild their infrastructure. They can use this money for things like broadband infrastructure, which uh, those states that, that you mentioned, you know, need broadband infrastructure. Many of them just do not have it. And in today's digital world, you need it. They can use this money for that, and they should. Uh, and it's really disappointing that at this point, these states have not shown a lot of interest in spending that money. And I just hope that they're waiting for the right moment to do so because they really ought to. But do the residents of these states know what's going on? I, I get the impression that maybe they don't because if they did, they'd be telling their state and local governments, you know, particularly broadband, which is not left or right. It's not ideological. It's it's actually a, a good argument for pro-business types, right? It improves your productivity. 
absolutely. I, I, I do wonder what what the folks in these states are hearing and what they're being told. I mean, that's part of why we published the piece, why we're trying to to get on programs like yours to get the word out to folks, because one of the requirements of the funding, or not a requirement, a strong recommendation from the Treasury Department, is that state and local governments should be doing intensive community engagement to get in touch with citizens and hear what's going on and to get in touch with their communities all together and find out what's happening what people want, what people, what people need. There are great examples of this all over the country of state and local governments really digging in and saying, okay, we've got this opportunity to spend this money in transformative ways. What do you all think we should do? And so I happen to live in Minnesota and in Minnesota, they spent 500 million of their SLFRF dollars on a premium pay program for low-wage workers, which took that money and put it directly in the pockets of people who were on the front lines during the pandemic so that people like me who work out of the house were able to be safe. And those folks deserve that money. It was a great use of the money. And it's no surprise that Minnesota has the lowest unemployment rate in the country right now because we spent to help the workers and that's helped our whole economy. So... What happens then, given that this the states of South Carolina, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, South Dakota, and Mississippi have spent less than 10% of the funds that they've been allocated? So in other words, are they going to have to turn back 90% of that money to the federal government? Well, I sure hope not. They have... But that's they what, have. Is that the end consequence? Uh, is that the choice? Yes. You spend it or you have to yeah, give they, it back? Yes, they have until the end of next year. So they've got 21 months or so to decide how to spend the money called obligate the money. And then they have two full years after that to actually put the checks out the door. Um, but the reason I'm concerned about it now is that most of these states are doing their biennial budgets right now as we speak. You know, this is the spring of the odd numbered years is when states do their budgeting. And I'm worried that if these states don't make these decisions now, they might not be able to get around to it, even though 21 months seems like a long time. It actually is going to slip by pretty fast. And if they haven't, if they haven't obligated this money by New Year's Eve 2024, uh, they they will lose the rest of it that they haven't spent, and that's ridiculous. And it's no one benefits from that. Uh, their own citizens would be harmed by it. And so I hope that they they will wake up and, and do something with it. So. Have you heard anything from these governments, or has anybody heard from them? Have, have they ever justified the fact that they're not, they got all this money sitting in the bank and they're not spending it? I mean, is it ideological? Is it all this anti-big government nonsense that a lot of these ideologues on the right keep spouting about? Well, you know, it, it is difficult to avoid noticing what you did, and that is the political alignment of these states. And, and one wonders... It, what what more is happening is they're not saying much at all, and that's part of the challenge. Again, if they would engage on this subject with their own people, with their own with their own residents, with the, with the businesses in their community, if they would talk about it, I think they would hear from those constituents that yes, we want you to spend this money. The fact is, they're by and large keeping their heads down about it, and so I'd love for them to engage more about it, even if they said things I didn't agree with. At least talk about it in public so we can have that conversation. Well, you know, we've seen what goes on in Tennessee and whether Republicans have a supermajority and they they just, you know, railroaded a couple of young black uh, lawmakers and had to reinstate them. So a lot of these states do have supermajorities. 
some uh, that have supermajorities uh, of Republicans, that is, like Kentucky, they apparently spent the money. So, you know, they're all obviously controlled by Republican governors and have Republican majorities in their legislature. But, I mean, we've seen the problems of supermajorities. So is there a connection there? You know, you've got super majorities. It's a great question. And you don't have It's the... a great question. Right. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I certainly think it's a problem when there isn't a mechanism for the voice of the people to get through to a legislature. And when and when a legislature has gerrymandered themselves into a place where uh, the the politicians choose the voters instead of the voters choosing the politicians. That definitely decreases the incentive of policymakers to listen to those people. So I am worried about that. But it is also true that there are states that fit the same political alignment as these that have taken the money, recognized that they could do things with it, and spent it. Texas has spent a ton of their money. Tennessee, as you say, there are plenty of states that are spending this money. So I hope that these others are just taking their sweet time and are sooner or later going to get around to it. Well, no, Tennessee's not spending the money, but presumably Kentucky, which has a supermajority, is. Yeah, sorry, thank you. Yes, Kentucky. Um, but you do you do have very, uh, you know, states that would be considered red states. Again, like Louisiana has done a pretty good job spending its money. Kansas has done a pretty good job spending its money. Wyoming has done a pretty good job spending its money. Texas, as I say. So there are states that are, you know, you, you and I would call a red state that are spending the money. Georgia is spending the money. Um, and so it, it's not across the board, the, the hesitancy of, of policymakers. It's just some of them. And I'm hoping that they'll look. I'm hoping people in, you know, in Mississippi will look next door to Louisiana and see what they're doing, and they'll spend the money. Right. Well, it's an amazing story. <laughs> I mean, if you or I had, you know, millions of dollars sitting in our bank account, I think we might spend it. It's just it's hard to get your head around and it has to be some weird ideological reason why they're not doing it. So thanks for the work you're doing and bringing attention to this. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Dave Camper, who is a senior state policy coordinator for the Economic Analysis and Research Network at the Economic Policy Institute, whose work focuses on the Midwest, helping to bring together policymakers and grassroots leaders to build collaborative relationships that empower communities in America's heartland. And he has an article at the Economic Policy Institute, State and Local Governments Have Spent Less Than Half of Their American Rescue Plan Fiscal Recovery Funds. Recovery funds should be used to rebuild the public sector. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the callous barbarism of dueling warlords in Sudan, supported by the Saudis and Emiratis, who are duking it out with bombs and tanks with innocent civilians' collateral damage. Inflation getting higher, makes it hard on the buyer. Unemployment on the rise, gasoline issue filled with lines, rent being paid late. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Steve Howard, who's a professor and associate director for graduate studies at the Ohio University School of Media, Arts, and Studies, a sociologist by training whose work focuses on social change in Africa and social movements in the Muslim world. He was a visiting professor at the Afad University for Women in Sudan, 
Anne is the author of Sudan, Scenes from a Youthful Uprising, and his forthcoming book is We Are Mahmoud, On the Path of the Prophet in Unsettled Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Steve Howard. Thank you very much. Well, talk about unsettled times in the capital of Sudan, Khartoum, with two generals, in effect two warlords, one one in charge of the country and the other one the deputy leader. Their rival militias are duking it out in the, all across the country, and civilians are collateral damage. It's absolutely an outrageous situation. What are you hearing from Sudan? I, I'm hearing that um, people are losing neighbors and friends whose houses are getting bombed. And um, I guess so far there's been about 150 civilians killed um, in the in the streets around Khartoum and, um, and a, a few other people outside of the capital. And, and everybody is kind of astonished because this is um, the last few days of Ramadan. And one of the the principles of Ramadan is that at least, at the very least, that that war is forbidden uh, during Ramadan. And um, these guys are are duking it out, as you say, while um, people are running around trying to collect a few things to have for their their evening breaking of the fast breakfast, as you would as we'd call it which happens at sunset after a day of abstaining from food and drink. And um, it's really kind of obscene that uh, they're breaking this ancient Muslim tradition of um, postponing war until after Ramadan is over. And with the idea that maybe things get worked out during uh, this break, too. So very, very upsetting. But the general, the de facto leader of the country and the leader of the army, General Abdel Fattah al-Burham, isn't he supposed to be a, an Islamic fundamentalist? Well, yeah. I mean, in, in principle, all of these guys who are fighting are of that ilk uh, connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. And that's uh, really uh, the organization behind all of this. I think we have to go back to um, Sudan's amazing popular uprising or revolution of 2019 when people took to the streets and managed to chase the 30-year dictator um, Omar al-Bashir out of office. And he's currently in uh, the big prison in the Khartoum area. Um, But uh, so... So these uh, generals and the, the military uh, officials were astonished that uh, one of their own was taken out by this uh, popular uprising. And ever since, um, they have. this is, in, in effect, the fifth uh, attempted coup, or, or literal one, since uh, the, the events of 2019 in which People took to the streets, particularly young people and women, grandmothers and so forth, and demanded that um, the terrible austerity and religious restrictions and um, and hypocritical nonsense relate, uh, 
uh, claimed to be religious during the 30-year uh, dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir that come to an end. And uh, so they, they did have agreements that um, this would lead to uh, transition. It, it, there was a transitional government and that that would lead to uh, open and free elections. But, but Sudan has so little um, uh, uh, history of democracy and democratic behavior and, and practice of democracy that um, the military just can fairly easily take over and uh, make it impossible to install, install a, a democratic regime. So it um, really makes me uh, very, very sad for the people of Sudan who deserve better governance than this. And they, they, they haven't had it in their, uh, they haven't had much good governance in uh, the years since their independence in 1956. So in 2019, the people rise up and get rid of the dictator, 30-year dictatorship yeah. of Bashir. Yeah. And then they try to get a civilian government going, but the military just don't want to go away. Right, and yeah. that now you have the two main military figures with the, the head of the army, Al Burnham, and the RSF, which is the uh, Rapid Support Forces. That's a militia that's been particularly violent and behaved in a genocidal way in Darfur, etc. So that guy, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, he's as bad as they come. But neither of these two guys get, seem to give a damn about the country. They're just shooting no. it out. And as I say, civilians in the main capital city, Khartoum, are collateral damage. But I don't think this would be happening, would it, Steve, unless for the fact that the Saudis and the Emiratis support these generals. And just as they, the Saudis financed the comeback of Sisi in, after there was an uprising in Egypt, and you had a brief moment there where there was an elected government, and then the dic military dictatorship came back, largely through Saudi money. And the same thing is happening there, isn't it? I mean, there's, there are outside forces that are denying the people of Sudan any chance at democracy because the Saudi's leader and this little punk MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, he's dead against, as a Saudi royal family, are dead against democracy, right? They're, yeah. they're medieval. They want to have to keep their kingdom going, and they got tons of money. And aren't they the power behind the scenes here? Well, in, in effect, they really are, but also... Um, the element of greed, avarice, is uh, really uh, taking charge here, too, with uh, the generals and the upper-level military types are uh, just uh, inspired by kind of open season on Sudan's resources, such everything from gold, which is underground in the, um, particularly in the north, um, not too far from the Nile. And then um, there are uh, open, it's such a big open country, there there are lorries, trucks coming into um, uh, across the border from Egypt, which are sponsored in many ways by these, um, uh, these wealthy Gulf guys. And they're loading up trucks with 
um, cows and, and other livestock and grain and just uh, robbing the country of, of its resources. Um, and it's, it's, it's really quite obscene, I, I have to say, that um, these guys are having a, a civil war in order to have given themselves more space to, um, to, to take these resources away from the, the people of Sudan and allow them to have uh, decent lives. It's uh, really a, a terrible situation. And the Saudis have gotten uh, the um, Sudanese military to fight for them in Yemen, haven't they? As proxy fights. Right. Yeah, they they brought the uh, the RSF over there too. And and just a note about um, the rapid support forces. This um, um, institution actually goes back to uh, European Union support because um, their original intent was the uh, the EU decided to finance that group because they were helping to kind of keep the borders closed so that immigrants um, from the Horn of Africa, from East Africa, wouldn't cross the Sudan-Egypt border and head to the Mediterranean and try to get to, or through Libya and uh, try to get to to Europe. So uh, the RSF has, in fact, uh, European money behind it, at least in in its origins. Uh, so that's that was another big mistake. So, what's happening now? I mean, in terms of uh, the seat of power, the Republican Palace, supposedly the RSF took it, but now the government saying no. The uh, Burm saying he no, he's still in charge or still holds it. Is this just going to be um, a bloody battle to the draw, or is somebody going to come out ahead in terms of these two warlords? Well, I, I don't have an answer to that, and I just um, I, I I know the the UN Security Council met about this today, and I'm hoping that somehow there's some kind of massive um, international intervention, at least of a diplomatic nature, to get um, um, talk some sense into uh, the, the the people thinking about. Um, uh, destroying the country in in the middle of a of a holy month and and um, ruining people's lives and this is supposed to be a few days away from one of the biggest holiday seasons of the year and uh, and the Sudanese people are in misery um, as we speak so I I really I can't predict um, who's going to come out on top but I think. Um, my guess would be, if I have to guess, that uh, will um, they'll eventually um, calm down, retreat a bit, and um, then we'll have we'll go through the same cycle of discussions about um, uh, political parties and so forth. But um, maybe it will be replaced by temporary peace. Um, but I'm not terribly optimistic that this will come out well at this point. Well, the African Union has announced that it's sending its top diplomat, and there there were already talks underway to restore a civilian government. And as you said, what was the last civilian government was about 40 years ago. So that seems to be the situation, right, that these guys are going to fight it out. They'll resume talks, but that doesn't mean that they're serious about actually doing anything, right? 
about yeah, allowing yeah. I mean, civilians to rule. These guys don't have a democratic bone in their bodies. They don't have any experience of it. The um, Sudanese military has never been particularly um, attentive to the idea that they are subordinate to any kind of civilian force. They they don't have an experience of that. So trying to instill that notion into these guys as part of the uh, negotiation for a for peace, um, it just it's it's a bit hard to wrap what one's head around that uh, this could lead to. Uh, I mean, knocking sense into these guys when avarice and um, and some sort of mistaken notion of what Sudan is as a Muslim country um, uh, guide their their thinking more than. You know, let's have a a, a democratic country and, and let people have a government that uh, that they deserve. So it's um, uh, just too early in the process to know what's going to happen, I think. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Steve, what can the U.S. do here? I mean, the U.S. did lift sanctions in 2017, hoping that Sudan would integrate into the international system. And then two years later, of course, they got finally got rid of the long-term dictator. But how active is the U.S. and what kind of clout does the U.S. have? I, I, have, I would have to say that um, U.S. Um, influence in Sudan these days is, is fairly limited. And um, I think... Probably the best the U.S. can do is really um, ramp up as many uh, like-minded political figures to to have a, a huge coalition to say Sudan stop this, um, rather than the U.S. try to uh, do something unilaterally. I, I don't think the the American political intervention by itself is going to have much impact these days. Well, I think, you, uh, the you, people have lost faith in the right. U.S. But on the other hand, you've got the Wagner Group, this right. mercenary army, they're in, involved in extracting gold from Western Sudan and right. selling it through intermediaries in the, in the United Arab Emirates. Right, and um, that money a, ends up financing yeah. Vladimir Putin's war machine. So, or some, you know, so right. you'd think that the U.S. has a dog in this fight. Well, I don't know if if uh, the U.S. has has the uh, the courage and the, the moral authority to go in and and try to uh, bring an end to this, or or the ability. Really, I, I think it's a very desperate situation and certainly needs more global attention, uh, which is why I'm I'm glad you're having your listeners uh, hear something about it, too. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Steve Howard. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Steve Howard. He's a professor and associate director for graduate studies at The Ohio University School of Media, Arts and Studies, a sociologist by training whose work focuses on social change in Africa and social movements in the Muslim world. 
He was a visiting professor at the Afad University for Women in Khartoum, Sudan, and is the author of Sudan, Scenes from a Youthful Uprising, and his forthcoming book is We Are Mahmoud, On the Path of the Prophet in Unsettled Times. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half